listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsuit, and this episode has been recorded in Brussels on Tuesday, February 18, 2020. My guest today is Virginie batu Enriksen, the spokesperson for foreign affairs and security policy led by the High Representative Vice President of the Commission, Josep Borrell. This podcast episode has been recorded inside Berlaymont, an office building in Brussels, Belgium, which houses the headquarters of the European Commission, the executive branch of the European Union. Can't believe I got that all out at once. All right. So uh, thank you for being my guest today, Virginie. You've worked for the Council of the European Union, and now you work for the European Commission. There's also the European Parliament. Pretend I'm a four-year-old. Could you briefly explain for us the difference between the various institutional organs of the European Union? Briefly? <laughs> Let's try. Um, so the European Commission is the body which uh, makes a proposal. It's composed of 27 commissioners, uh, one per uh, member state, but they do not represent the member states. They are each having a portfolio uh, with a specific responsibility. They are, as I said, in charge of making, uh, they have the monopoly of initiative in particular in the domain of legislation. Then you have two uh, bodies, who, uh, two institutions who are the co-legislators, the European Parliament with MEPs who are directly uh, elected by European citizens. And you have the Council of the European Union, which is composed of representatives of the member states, the 27 of them, uh, and which meet in different configurations according of the subject matter. Now, as we are about to talk about sanctions, I should add uh, what is a, not an institution, but a very important uh, um, service, the European External Action Service, which is uh, the diplomatic service of the European Union. Sorry, we have a some kind of emergency vehicle going past that. Yes, so the EEAS is like the diplomatic service. So it's not called the foreign ministry, but it's the external action service. Yeah, I guess in a way you could say that it's the equivalent. It's indeed the the, the service which has uh, all the diplomats uh, working on behalf of the European Union uh, to uh, formulate and implement uh, EU policy in uh, foreign policy. Okay, now on Thursday afternoon, I'm going to be interviewing a member of the European Parliament, Mr. Lucas Mandel, a newly elected chair of the Korean Peninsula delegation. Would it be accurate to say that his job is on the policy making side and you're sort of on the policy execution side? Well, actually, no, this uh, is not exactly accurate. When it comes to uh, foreign policy, in fact, uh, it's it's a very specific area where the responsibilities lies mostly uh, with the Council of the European Union. So here, the um, body which is in charge of uh, making proposals, uh, is uh, the high representative, mm -hmm. so the, as head of uh, the European External Action Service, often together with the Commission, because a lot of the elements on the policy, on the foreign policy front, has to do also with um, things that belong to the Commission, such as uh, development cooperation or trade. But first and foremost, and this is especially true when it comes to um, what we call common foreign and security policy, which uh, the sanctions policy is part of, it's really for the European External Action Service, the high representative to take the work forward in terms of proposing. Then when it comes to decision making, it lies with the Council of the European Union and exclusively 
the Council of the European Union. It's not like, let's say, on uh, other matters like budget, for instance, where the parliament would be co-legislator. This is very different. This is only for the Council of the European Union to make the decision. And now, when it comes to implementation, there are some different aspects with a role for uh, both the high representative and the commission. But first and foremost, the implementation is with the member states themselves. Um, so, no, I, I would say that um, the, the, on these particular matters, the European Parliament does not have uh, an actual uh, role. It doesn't mean that uh, what they say doesn't have a voice and that we don't listen uh, to what, as representative of European citizens, they can say. But institutionally speaking, uh, they do not contribute to uh, the shaping of the policy. Okay. Now, the main thing we're here to talk about today is uh, sanctions, and specifically sanctions on the DPRK. First of all, uh, beginner's question again, what is a sanction and what is a sanction not? There are various types of sanctions. One, uh, I would say, is uh, the type of uh, sectoral or economic sanctions. For instance, banning the, the trade on a particular sector or products, range of products. Uh, then we have uh, sanctions on individuals. This type of sanction usually impose a travel ban. Uh, so these people are not permitted to come to the European Union or travel within the European Union. Actually, if I can interrupt there, before we get into examples, I want to sort of step back and, you know, big picture it. So I was at this uh, background briefing earlier, you might have heard of it, uh, and something about, I heard something about a, a sanction being a tool, not a policy. And what, what is that actually? What What's it, and what does it seek to do and what does it not seek to do? Okay, sorry. Yes, indeed, I should have taken a step back. Um, sanctions are indeed a tool which uh, come uh, as part of a set of tools of uh, that we have in the common uh, foreign and security policy to achieve our objectives. So it's, ne it's never, we don't do sanctions for the purpose of doing sanctions. It's always with an objective. Um, so, uh, for instance, in the case of DPRK, our objective is very clear. We aim to achieve denuclearization of the Korean, Korean Peninsula. For this, we have decided to have a policy of what we call critical engagement towards uh, the DPRK. Critical engagement means strong pressure through sanctions as a tool and uh, engagement when necessary. Uh, and I have to say that at this point, it's rather thin. But the idea is indeed that this strong pressure will lead to a dialogue which at, at the right time will allow us to engage uh, towards uh, a sustained uh, diplomatic process aimed at building trust and establishing lasting peace and security on the Korean Peninsula free of nuclear weapons. How long has the uh, critical engagement been the policy of the EU towards the DPRK? So, in fact, this policy of critical engagement towards the DPRK, so combining these uh, two approach, strong pressure on the one hand and very clear message that, that we are ready to have communication, uh, we keep our, our channel of dialogue open when, uh, f when it comes to uh, going for objective, like I explained. This was set out uh, in Council conclusions, which were adopted on 17th of July 2017, uh, and this set out the European Union position and continue to provide the necessary political policy guidelines. So constant conclusion, as you ask a number of uh, beginners questions, if I may, are adopted by, in, the, in this case, uh, foreign ministers at unanimity in the Council of the EU. Okay, so this policy has been there for, uh, what, two and a half years, uh, roughly. 2018 was obviously a very interesting year in terms of uh, DPRK uh, dip diplomacy with the rest of the world. 
Was there a much response from the EU in terms of that open channel of uh, discussions with North Korea? We have followed, obviously, the developments very closely. Uh, as, as I just explained, what is really important for us is that we achieve the objective of uh, having a peaceful Korean peninsula free of nuclear weapons. And any initiative that could lead to that objective, of course, we, we are happy to follow it and we, we would even welcome it. At the same time, we didn't see any elements that would allow us to adjust our policy. So for now, on our side, while following very closely the developments, and especially the efforts uh, on the intra-Korean uh, peninsula, we uh, believe that it is there is not yet it's not yet the time to change this policy that I explained of critical engagement with the strong pressure. Okay, now there are different kinds of sanctions. Of course, we, uh, we're here today at the EU, so we're talking about EU sanctions, but there's also UN sanctions, US sanctions, South Korean sanctions, multilateral, unilateral sanctions. What's the difference between the different types of sanctions and how do they work together? The basis is a U- sanctions imposed by the United Nations. These apply to all members of the United Nations, so they are mo- the most universal, if you wish, in terms of legal acts, very concretely, they need to be transposed by the, in, in the European Union law. So that's what we do on a systematic basis. And then organizations like ours, like um, the European Union, or countries like the US or South Korea can decide to add more sanctions. They basically complement each other in, and, in fact, reinforce the objectives of the policy. So are there any EU sanctions on specifically on North Korea that go beyond uh, the UN? Yes, very much so. Uh, for instance, I can uh, give you an example. Um, while the UN does not do that fully, uh, we prohibit the export of uh, uh, refined petroleum fully. Another element is the listings. Uh, so the people uh, or entities and the sanctions, we have more than what are, are on the list of the United Nations. Okay, so about that listing, so this is, uh, for example, does the, are we talking about travel bans or is it more than that? Two things, travel bans, uh, and this apply obviously only on, on people, uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is asset freeze. Asset freeze means two things, that any personal entity having assets in the European Union, are, well, these assets uh, is, are frozen. They cannot go any ma- anymore to these uh, this entities or persons. Um, and as well, it is forbidden for European companies or persons to make resources available to these companies or to these uh, uh, people. So, in other words, it's prohibited to make to, to have business uh, uh, with these persons and companies. It goes also beyond that but in practice that's the main effect and are you aware of any uh, north korean owned assets that are currently frozen within the eu we do monitor to some extent uh, what is the situation we have to be aware as the institution but this is not a, this information is really internal so i'm not i can't i don't have the information to be honest personally speaking uh, but while we keep an eye on on and it's normal that you know we have in place a number of uh, uh, of sanctions and we need to know what it means in concrete uh, this is only for the purpose of internal monitoring pro- um, mm-hmm. inside of the eu okay but theoretically speaking if a if a member state of the eu freezes some assets, are they supposed to report that back to your organization? Yes. Okay. So uh, you mentioned earlier that the uh, the purposes of sanctions against the DPRK are to move the DPRK towards denuclearization. Are there also sanctions that are there to move North Korea in a certain human rights direction, or are they all directed at denuclearization? 
Well, so far, or the sanctions that we have currently on, in place on DPOK really focus on the nuclear program. This doesn't mean that we do not have any concern regarding uh, human rights in uh, North Korea, but uh, the, the sanctions per se are really uh, focused on, on this program. So what we are aware that the situation in the DPOK remains extremely serious. Um, in fact, the UN special reporter on the situation of human rights in the DPOK said uh, in September 2019, there is no sign of improvement in the situation of people's human rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And the government of the DPOK, the primary duty bearer relating to, to human rights obligations, continues to oppress its people's fundamental freedoms and violate their human rights. So obviously we are we continue to expect uh, that the DFPLK uh, implement the recommendation of the United Nations Commission of Inquiry uh, and various other inter uh, UN bodies, including the Human Rights Council. Uh, we expect that DPOK engage with and extend its full cooperation with, rela with relevant uh, UN, uh, UN body. And for us, accountability for human rights violations in the DPOK is absolutely essential. So how... Does the implementation of sanctions um, levied by the European Union work uh, with regard to North Korea? And how do they work and what needs improvement in that area? In a way, this is difficult for me to answer the, the, the question. I mean, we on, in the case of North Korea, we have the sanctions coming from the UN. So we have an analysis. Colleagues in the European External Action Service, including lawyers, have a look at the, uh, what, it, what this resolution or the decision by the UN means and then transport it into a, a legal EU text. This legal EU text is discussed in the relevant bodies of the Council of the European Union, where all, all the member states sitting, and um, then it's adopted. And as I said in, or in the very beginning, then the implementation of it is really for the member states. Mm. Um, so here from Brussels, uh, in the EU institution, we don't really look at, uh, at this part, although we, of course, help provide guidance on, on, on implementation in the member states. The other thing, and this is a bit specific to uh, North Korea, uh, in a way, is that it's very important. I mean, a big part of the sanctions on the DPRK are United Nations sanctions. The only way that the sanction works, meaning that they actually put enough pressure on the government, on the on the authorities to change the behavior, to go towards serious uh, nuclear denuclearization, is that everybody implement these sanctions correctly. So what the EU has done is to... Um, uh, help partners uh, to reach out to them to explain how these sanctions worked, to remind of the obligations, but really explain because that's always uh, more often the issues. It's, these are complete, complex matters with all sort of legal aspects to it. And uh, colleagues in the uh, in the European External Action Service have conducted formal demarches, so diplomatic demarches, going to talk with, to partners to say, look, you know this how it works, uh, this is how it works. It's very important that you make controls so that these sanctions are really effective and that they can actually um, deliver what they are meant for. So just on the uh, the area of sanctions, as this is more 
UN-related, but still it, it's relevant. Uh, North Korea seems to continually successfully evade export sanctions. For example, just last week we had the report that $370 million worth of coal were exported last year by North Korea, uh, according to the United Nations Panel of Experts. Doesn't this make a mockery of, uh, of any kind of sanctions implement, effective sanctions implementation? I wouldn't go as far as mockery, but what I was trying to explain is that it's very important that everybody implement the sanctions that the, uh, the UN have imposed. As I said, sometimes it's a matter of like understanding exactly what it means or having the means to control and to implement the sanctions. Uh, so that's why in the European Union, we provide technical assistance. I've talked about the diplomatic demarches, but we also help, uh, in fact, uh, through technical assistance to further implement uh, the DPRK sanctions. Okay, so as far as you know, um, within the EU, implementation and compliance is pretty good? I would say so. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's it's something that I uh, can't really go into details sure. because, uh, as I explained, we have a look. We um, This are discussion that member states have uh, with their own experts. Uh, they seek guidance when they need to. So it's not really something that is like uh, would be discussed publicly. But what is for sure is that the EU is very committed to the policy of uh, critical engagement and including the part on strong pressure. Uh, this is why we have added sanctions in addition uh, to uh, the regime imposed by the United Nations. Um, so uh, we are very careful uh, as well with uh, the implementation. Now, I've talked to uh, a number of people who work in humanitarian and other aid work in North Korea, and they mostly argue that sanctions affect the weakest members of society within North Korea and that sanctions therefore are, are, are very uh, blunt instrument and don't really attack the targets that they're supposed to. How does the EU work to ensure that sanctions sanctions target only those actors and activities that they should be? Uh, let me go back on your previous question first. I just wanted to say in terms of like implementation, what you, um, uh, one thing that is very visible and that is very public as well is the fact that we have almost no trade uh, going out going on between the European Union and North Korea. On you, all the questions, that's a difficult one. So uh, in the case of DPRK sanctions, as, as actually most of our sanctions regime, there is a humanitarian derogation foreseen. And for instance, we do not, expose, uh, we do not impose any restriction on uh, import of food. So should uh, DPRK would like to buy food to feed its people from us, there wouldn't be any restriction. Sanctions, again, are an instrument to put pressure on the government to make other choices. So I don't want to, we have a policy here of not commenting on comment, and I haven't heard directly this criticism, but what is for sure is that uh, first and foremost, North Korea is um, responsible for the situation uh, in the sense of having sanctions. They are in breach of numerous uh, United Nations Security Council resolutions. This cannot go without consequences. This is why the international community has put in place a sanction regime, which is one of the most stringent in the world, so that they can change the behavior. Aren't there also uh, secondary indirect effects of sanctions? For instance, many banks and other institutions will not have anything to do with North Korea for fear of coming under investigation by the United States Office of Foreign Asset Control. How can this be avoided? Should it be avoided? <laughs> That's one question. Well, I'll okay, give you a, a good example. There are some, uh, some organizations based in Europe who do projects within North Korea in order to carry out those projects, they have to buy raw materials, bring them into North Korea, or bring money into North Korea. And uh, that can be difficult because 
the uh, the institutions that they work with refuse to uh, assist them in that process because they say, oh, this is to do with North Korea. It's better we don't touch it, so we're not going to help you. Look, as I said before, for us, all self, as European Union, we have uh, provided emergency humanitarian assistance to help the most vulnerable in recent years. This is provided as uh, any aid that we provide worldwide on the basis of international humanitarian principles of impartiality and neutrality. We have been supporting the most vulnerable situ- uh, population in the area, for instance, of food security. When it comes to sanctions, and I said uh, I said it already before, we have humanitarian derogation in place. Now, again, I'm not sure if you're referring to projects that are specifically human- of humanitarian nature, but the responsibility of protecting the people of North Korea is first and foremost with the government of North Korea. And the government of North Korea knows very well what needs to be done, which is go back to respect of the numerous uh, United Nations uh, Security Council resolution, which are very clear about um, uh, the development of a nuclear program. The sanctions are here to achieve a goal. Uh, And what is really important is to see a, a commitment to a meaningful dialogue, to resume a meaningful dialogue towards um, full denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. When the EU negotiates or has a dialogue with North Korea, what form does that usually take? Uh, do people from the EU uh, external action service actually go to North Korea to have talks or do the, vice versa? Do North Koreans come here for that? Or is that more part of the, sort of uh, an adjunct to US-North Korea dialogue? Well, I mean, we, we let's say that um, I, I'm not going to go into the details of the, the contacts that may or, uh, or have been uh, going on mostly at technical level uh, with between our, our counterparts. Let's say we have a, an approach which is uh, discrete because it's, uh, it's important that the steps are taken in a prudent way. Uh, the situation is uh, not uh, easy. We, we have... We have had a number of contacts, but uh, so far we have had no uh, reason, no incentive, no element which would allow us to believe that uh, we should uh, look at more steps, especially in terms of sanctions uh, relief. Now, you said earlier that currently there's very, very little trade between the EU and North Korea. Uh, Would the EU like to see almost all trade with North Korea stop until its behavior changes towards denuclearization? I think we have a a good balance. Uh, I think we went to as far as we wanted to uh, go. Uh, We do not have um, uh, an intention. For instance, it's it's important that we don't prevent any food import. Uh, It's in line with uh, what you have said as well uh, when it comes to... um, making sure that the humanitarian aspects can still be worked out in a way. I I suppose that uh, this is where we want to be. We don't uh, believe, I mean, if there were any further steps to be taken, uh, I believe that we would have uh, looked into that by now. It has been quite a while since we didn't do any additional measure. Of course, as I I said in the very beginning, if the United Nations decide to do one step one way or another, we will uh, certainly implement that. How often are EU sanctions reviewed and renewed? Well, 
UN sanctions is a bit uh, specific because they don't have any deadline. I mean, as a general rule, we keep an eye on the sanctions policy. It's not like we put sanctions and we forget about it. And, you know, but here it's even more so because we have additional sanctions, uh, autonomous, as we call them, imposed by us, by the European Union, and for which we have deadlines. So they have to be renewed either every six months or every, um, every year. I believe that sometimes we even look at them every six months and then formally we extend them uh, every year. I mean, there are mechanisms in place to uh, to monitor that the sanctions, we look at the system that we have in place on a regular basis and see if it's still justify. And this means as well, and let me stress that out, that we look at every single listing. It's not just that we look, okay, is this overall okay? No, we look uh, colleagues look one by one, is this person still supposed to be on the sanction list? Is this entity still supposed to be on the sanction list? So or sanctions are in the sense very solid. Uh, and you may know that or sanctions are also uh, things that are that can be contested in front of the European Court of Justice, which make them even more uh, even stronger in a way because they are, are part of a broader system uh, of law, generally speaking. So you mentioned the, uh, the European Court of Justice. Does that mean that if if North Korea, if the government of North Korea wanted to, it could raise a challenge at that court uh, on particular sanctions. In fact, I mentioned the court. It's not really about the government. It's about the listed individual and entities. It's very important for the European Union that when you take a decision about an individual or an entity, which is obviously the case of uh, sanctions, it is possible, the right to you know contest is very important. It, so it is possible for this individual or entity to go to the court and say, look, I don't think my decision is justified. And then the court would look at you know what we have stated, as the reason, what we call that a statement of reasons uh, of uh, listing, we'd look at the overall policy of what we're trying to achieve with this decision, with the, the, the criteria that we describe in the decision, and we decide yes or no. Um, but no, it's not really a mechanism for government. When it comes to government, uh, we have diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And what's the process by which EU sanctions against the DPRK could in future be lifted? I mean, let, let's say in the ideal world, um, you know, a negotiation uh, reaches a successful conclusion, North Korea denuclearizes. How do sanctions actually get lifted? What's the end? So for the UN sanctions, there needs to be an agreement in the United Security Council. But at uh, the EU level? At the EU level. Uh, I mean, if, so if, EU, if UN sanctions are lifted, does that mean EU sanctions which are similar, are automatically lifted, or is that require? No, it's a- not uh, automatic. It would require an additional step. It's a political decision for the European Union, and uh, it's linked, or the pressure that we've put uh, needs to be maintained until a deal in the nucle- nuclear matter, in the in, in the problem of the uh, nuclear weapon on the co- on nuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, until this deal is done, and, I, and that verification mechanism shows that it's working, then the sanction needs to be maintained. After that, well, sanction could be considered uh, to be lifted, but this would be part uh, described in the deal itself. If we think about the GCPOA, the Iranian uh, nuclear deal, it was very much describing every single detail uh, of like, okay, you do that, we do the sanctions will go there, uh, will be lifted on this part, and so on and so forth. But I have to say that sanction relief at this stage on the uh, DPLK is not currently on the table. What are uh, what are snapbacks and how can they be helpful in the process of uh, implementing and lifting sanctions? So snapback, in fact, is well. I just refer to the Iran nuclear deal, and snapback is a terminology that is very much, that has been. 
that is known actually in this context. It refers to the reimposition of sanctions in very specific circumstances, which are set out in the agreement itself. It's not something that we have for the PRK. First, you need to have a deal, a deal which describes in very much in great detail what is the DPRK expected to do, step by step, what are the verification mechanism, step by step, who does a report, uh, and so on and so forth. Then in return, the sanctions would be lifted on part, uh, on these different parts. And then the snapback in a case like this, and as is the case in the GCPOA, would be, oh, but if we see that the country concerned go back to doing things that it's not supposed to do, like, you know, building up nuclear weapons, then sanction would be uh, coming back. So that's what it means. But this is not something that is being discussed because so far we don't even have the beginning of a deal. Okay, but snapbacks, then, if I understand correctly, are a, another kind of tool that can be used sometimes to ensure that good behavior is followed and a country doesn't go back to bad behavior. Is that more or less? It's more or less like that. It's um, it's a, I would call it maybe even an insurance policy. An insurance policy. Okay. Because, of course, you know, when you had the relations or non-relations with countries that have been developing uh, nuclear weapons when uh, when it's clearly against international policy of non-proliferation, non I mean, you're just not going to sign a paper and, oh, oh, I trust you, no problem. No, it doesn't work like this. You put in place sanctions, you put in place are very favorable elements and you put in place insurance mechanism which means uh, oh well if we all of a sudden see that this no longer works then we put back the we have we don't have to reinvent sanctions we can just put the sanction we had before now in the uh, the current uh, health crisis caused by the coronavirus uh, there've been some calls for temporary emergency sanctions relief to ensure that uh, the DPRK can get the healthcare assistance that it needs to prevent infection and to treat any confirmed cases of infection. Uh, how is the EU reacting to that? I mean, I think uh, I said on several occasions that uh, emergency humanitarian assistance remain available, uh, that we have the derogation specifically on place uh, for that. Uh, and if there is a need the DPOK could very much make a request via the European Commission for assistance. Okay, so that would require some kind of request from the DPRK government as to get any, that ball rolling. As any other country, yes. We don't. We simply don't go in and say like, hi, we're here, can we help? No, they, 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 it needs to be with a request. Okay, now uh, late last year, there were a number of uh, North Korean overseas workers uh, that were um, sent back to North Korea, um, also within the EU. Was that also part of sanctions related to denuclearization or was that something different? And why was it important for those laborers to be sent back? Well, this relates to a, um, a UN obligation. It's very simple. If you send, I mean, as any, uh, in fact, uh, worker uh, abroad, uh, DPRK workers abroad earn money, and they bring it back for the regime. Uh, in this, I mean, this is specific to the case of DPLK. They do work outside, and they bring the money back to the regime. It's in a way an indirect financing, or even sometimes we could even consider as a direct financing of a nuclear program that we do not support. Yeah, actually, for which we have a number of measures against. So that is why the UN has decided this is not possible and that is why we are implementing it. Okay, well that is where we will leave it today. Thank you very much Virginia Bato-Enriksen for your time and your answers today. Thank you very much.
Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Career Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.